Welcome to the Allen and Overy podcast. As part of this podcast series, we have been looking at some of the issues that parties may be facing when dealing with counterparties looking to get out of their contracts, which is topical given recent events coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode will pick up on some of the issues we've looked at in our earlier episodes, and we will specifically discuss whether a party is required to act in good faith when it comes to its English law governed contracts. My name is Chris Mitchell, and I am a senior associate in ANO's London Structured and Asset Finance team. Joining me on this podcast today are Helen Viggen and Peter Watson. Helen is counsel in ANO's London litigation team, and Peter is a consultant also in ANO's London litigation team. Now, Peter, Helen, when we are preparing pre-contractual documents, we regularly use terms like acting reasonably and stipulate that parties shall negotiate in good faith. I've always placed little weight on good faith as adding much to the burden on a client. So I guess I have two preliminary questions. One, is acting reasonably the same as acting in good faith? And secondly, what does acting in good faith mean? Thanks, Chris. Well, let me take those points and and maybe add another. First, I think that acting reasonably means not being irrational, capricious, or acting with an ulterior motive outside the scope of the negotiations or outside the overall relationship between the parties. So, for example, to make a decision purely in order to damage the other party would be acting with an ulterior motive. So I think that acting reasonably certainly falls within the scope of acting in good faith, but I think the duty of good faith goes further. So to deal with your second question, what does the duty of good faith import beyond acting reasonably? Well, it means dealing fairly. It means being honest. But the cases seem to suggest it goes further than that. And a good summary arising from those cases may be that parties shouldn't conduct themselves in a manner that would be regarded as commercially unacceptable by reasonable and honest people. So if you think you're acting honestly, but your actions are not faithful to the bargain, that's the phrase used in the cases, faithful to the bargain reached by the parties, then you may not be acting in good faith. But whether this is so or not means analyzing the nature of the bargain reached, analyzing the terms of the contract, and analysing the context in which the challenge to a party's conduct arises. But it's an important point, isn't it, that the test arises in the context of a concluded agreement in which a duty of good faith is either an express or an implied term. The fact that the parties have agreed to negotiate in good faith does not make an agreement to agree enforceable. Yeah, thanks, Helen. That's right. And an agreement to negotiate an agreement in good faith is still an agreement to agree. And in general terms, remains unenforceable under English law. And I I think that leads me to my other point, which is, should those dealing with financing or leasing arrangements, for example, be concerned about the risk of a duty of good faith being implied? So I think what we're saying is that we should start by looking at where the courts have decided a duty of good faith exists. And the case law on this really seems to start about seven or so years ago when a judge observed that where a contract was a relational contract, and that's using the court's phraseology, then this would be a factor in deciding that a duty of faith would be implied. It's, it's an interesting term. Um, what is a relational contract? 
Chris, it's a good question. And like all good legal questions, there's not a straightforward answer. And the issue of what is a relational contract is one that the courts have been actively considering recently. And it's fair to say that not all judges are in favour of developments in this area. A few years ago, there was a court of appeal case which said that a relational contract was a long-term contract which called for a degree of cooperation and collaboration between the parties and required a greater regard for each other's interests than ordinary commercial parties dealing at arm's length. This concept of relational contracts was taken up last year in the post office case, which was a case involving claims brought by sub-postmasters concerning defects in an electronic point of sale and accounting system for which the claimants were held responsible. The court held that the contract between the post office and the sub-postmasters was a relationship such that the post office was subject to duties of good faith, fair dealing, transparency, cooperation, trust and confidence. In this case, the court seemed to be saying that once you have a relational contract, then as a matter of law, good faith obligations would be implied into that contract. Looking at this from an asset finance perspective, many loan agreements and lease agreements are quite long term, five, ten or even more years long, and sometimes require a degree of cooperation, providing information, allowing access to books of account, access to aircraft, detailed steps on cooperation around delivery and return and so forth. Is that sufficient to make a contract relational? The court has given a list of the sort of characteristics that they will look at to determine whether a contract is relational. For example, it will be long term during which the parties will be collaborating with each other. There may be exclusivity, there may be degree of significant investment by one or both parties in the venture and there is likely to be a high degree of collaboration. To answer Chris's question, my own view is I, I don't think that carefully negotiated financing and leasing agreements should fall into the category of a relational contracts. They are arm length agreement. And a, a few recent decisions over the past year have also seen that some judges trying to draw a line against the sort of march of good faith by falling back to established principles. The post office case has been criticised because it seemed to go straight from concluding that there was a relational contract to implying the duty of good faith in respect of 17 key terms in the post office contract. Now, in a more recent decision, the court applied the traditional tests as to whether a contractual term should be implied, i.e., is it necessary for the business efficacy of the contract? And, and or would an officious bystander with knowledge of the facts say that it was obvious that such a term as to good faith should be implied? The court has also pointed out that not all long-term contracts involving a lasting cooperative relationship would, as a matter of law, involve an obligation of good faith, and that in detailed, professionally drawn contracts, it would be more difficult to imply good faith terms because there would be a strong influence that careful consideration had already been given to the terms that the parties had agreed they should be bound to. Absolutely. Uh, and that's the second point, that where parties are carefully set out all the terms intended to govern their relationship without mentioning good faith, then a court, in my view, should be very wary about trying to imply such a duty of good faith. And indeed, that's been illustrated in the Cathay Pacific and Lufthansa case, where Lufthansa tried to imply good faith obligations into an engine maintenance contract. 
The court refused to imply such provisions. As I said, the agreement was extremely detailed and had been carefully drafted by two commercial parties and their instructing solicitors. Indeed, they said the appropriate inference that should be drawn is that the parties had given very careful consideration as to which terms they wish to be bound by. Is it fair to say that we can be confident that in financing and leasing documents, a duty of good faith is unlikely to be applied? Yes, but don't forget that we've been discussing implied terms. If you have expressly agreed in your contract to act in good faith, then you have to do so. And by that, that means not acting in a commercially unacceptable manner. This brings with it the uncertainty as to what may, in hindsight, be deemed by a court to be commercially unacceptable. If I was asked, my advice would be to avoid including any express duty of good faith in an agreement wherever possible. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's also been a further case this year where the court emphatically held that a loan agreement was not a relational contract. It was a loan agreement. And that decision and another also made clear that where an absolute contractual right or power was vested in one party, no duty of good faith could be implied into the exercise of that power. Now, in leases and loan agreements and such like, most of the right powers of the lender or lessor are expressed in that manner. It's also worth pointing out that in a contract which has been professionally drafted and entered into between sophisticated parties, where a duty of good faith has been expressly applied to one aspect of the contractual terms, the court has effectively said that that ruled out a duty of good faith being implied elsewhere in the contract because the parties had considered where it should be applied and therefore by implication where it should not be applied to other discretionary powers. Also, if you expressly exclude any duty to act in good faith, then you should be confident that such a duty cannot be implied. Thanks, Helen. What are the key points? I see these as follows. One, agreements to agree in good faith are still generally unenforceable under English law. Two, avoid expressly agreeing to duties of good faith in a contract. You don't know what you're taking on commercially unacceptable conduct is a vague term and will inevitably be viewed in hindsight and is almost certainly um, a moving target. Three, you can be confident that as the law presently stands, it should be highly unlikely that carefully negotiated financial agreements like leases and loan agreements are going to be vulnerable to good faith duties being implied the same should apply to things like shareholder agreements, et cetera, et cetera. But there is no certainty, um, and this is a very active area of English law. Four, there's no doubt that disgruntled debtors are going to raise good faith issues in order to confuse or delay determination of the inevitable. Sorry to interrupt, Peter, but I think that some of these arguments will be raised sooner rather than later in the context of lessees seeking to extend rent deferral agreements, which they have entered into during the recent COVID-19 crisis. And I can see some lessees trying to raise this issue and claim that there is a good faith duty to agree further extensions. But for all the reasons that we've previously discussed, I think their argument is hopeless. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and hopefully the Cathay Pacific case that you mentioned isn't going to be useful ammunition for the lender lessor market. Okay, so returning to the key points, point five, 
There are one or two judges in the English court, including the Court of Appeal, a, a position of influence, who are keen to expand the doctrine of good faith in contracts. As I stated before, this issue is not done and dusted. It's a moving target. And, and six, and finally, you can always exclude any duty of good faith in a contract, and this will be effective. But it may be rather unpalatable to make clear to your counterparty that you're not going to act in good faith. Helen, Peter, thanks for your thoughts and views on what is a very interesting and relevant topic. Thanks also to you for listening. As ever, if you have any queries about any of the topics we have discussed, please do not hesitate to contact any of us or your usual A&O contact. Thank you.